Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. George W. Bush of the state of Texas has received for President of the United States 271 votes. Al Gore of the state of Tennessee has received 266 votes. This announcement of the state of the vote by the President of the Senate shall be deemed a sufficient declaration of the persons elected President and Vice President of the United States. May God bless our new President and our new Vice President, and may God bless the United States of America. George Bush of the state of Texas has received for Vice President of the United States 489 votes. Walter F. Mondale of the state of Minnesota has received 49 votes. Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes were no not... Debate. There's no debate. Is the objection in writing and not only signed by the member but by a United States Senator? Mr. President, even as people waited hours in no Georgia... And there's no debate. And if there's not signed by a senator, the objection cannot be entertained. Mr. President, the, the uh, objection is, is signed by a member of the House but not yet by a member of the Senate. Well, it is over. Uh, <laughs> All right, that was a whole bunch of uh, vice presidents, uh, many of them announcing <laughs> that they were not going to be president as part of their function as president of the Senate, if that makes any sense to you. Uh, and thanks to Jonathan McPants for making that montage. God bless the montage makers. Uh, and uh, welcome. Welcome to Ross Garber's Rockin' Election Certification Eve special. Uh, we've got a lot ahead of us, uh, including a lot of phone calls from you later on. But right now, Ross Garber is joining us. If you uh, were betting on Attorney General, the London betting markets had Ross Garber 7-1 to one. Uh, a possible attorney general designee for Joe Biden. That didn't happen. We're hearing it's Merrick Gar uh, Garland here in real time. But Ross Garber is a lawyer specializing in political investigations and impeachment and a legal analyst for CNN. He's one of those people who understands a lot of stuff that most people, including me, don't understand. So it's good to have Ross with us. Hi, Ross. Hey, and, and I'm still keeping hope alive for the whole attorney general thing. You, right. you just never know these days, right? Bro, it wouldn't be the first time Merrick Garland had to walk backwards anyway. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. a, there might be that opening that you could you could run through. So what's happening? I mean, let, let's let's forget about what's actually happening at this moment. What's supposed to happen? I mean, I've been on the radio a really long time and maybe in 2001 we, we heard Al Gore. I don't know. Maybe we said something about this, but this is a day that kind of nobody much notices most of the time. What is this day? Well, and, 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 and in some ways, it's one of the great things about, you know, our, our constitutional republic, about our democracy, is that we don't notice this thing that kind of in history is sort of an extraordinary event, which is this peaceful transfer of power. I mean, you know, one of the clips you played was, you know, Joe Biden, you know, presiding over the Senate and, you know, you know, shutting down a, a an objection. I mean, 
that's what's that's what's supposed to go on today and that's actually what will go on today uh today is a ceremonial day uh where the votes of the electoral college which are derived from the votes of citizens in all of our states when those votes are announced and congress recognizes the next president of the united states which in this case is going to be joe biden Right. So um, just for context and just uh, as a little bit of civics education, although it, it matters a little bit less now that we have a formal announcement from Mike Pence that he will not try to block Joe Biden's electors. But this isn't actually in the Constitution the way it is now. In other words, this idea of, of how it's going to work, it's covered by the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, but the Constitution doesn't really assign Congress this huge role that it could conceivably have now. Yeah, no, that, so that's right. The, the, the 12th Amendment, the Constitution, is very vague on how this is all supposed to work. Uh, you know, what, what the 12th Amendment says is that the vice president, uh, the, well, the, the president of the Senate, who is the, the vice president, uh, shall receive the electoral votes and then uh, those votes shall be counted. So it, 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 it says that we know uh, and it's very clear that the vice president gets the electoral votes. He opens up the certificates. And then it switches to the passive tense and says the votes shall be counted. And so it's not very clear who does the counting. And I think it's probably because the notion was that was sort of a, a ministerial event. But you could, you could have anybody count. In. You could conceivably have anybody count the votes the way that it's written. But then, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the notion is the Electoral College members meet, delegates meet, they cast their votes, they send in the certificates to Congress. And the vote shall be counted. It sounds like it's sort of not that big a deal mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be that big a deal. Um, but, you know, with that whole, there have been times in our history where it's turned into sort of a big deal. And the most famous example is 1876, where some states submitted competing slates of electors. You know, there were disputes then. The Democrats said that there were, was fraud and the Republicans said there was voter suppression. And so they, they had, this is the Tilden Hayes race. They had competing sets of electors submitted to Congress. And so Congress had to figure out, wait a minute. So how do we, how do we do this? Which slate of electors do we count, even though it's supposed to be ministerial? And it was a big deal then. And some argued that, wait a minute, it says the vice president gets the certificates and it says the vote shall be counted. Some argued, well, so it seems like it's the vice president. And actually, there then there were the vice presidency was uh, was unoccupied. The president of the Senate, the president of the Senate, should be doing the counting. And so he, had, some argued, he had the power to decide which slate of electors. And others said, well, that's not true. And so it turned into a, a big thing, which we can get into. But it resulted in after that race the Electoral uh, Count Act, where Congress said, hey, look, we can't have that happen again. We got to figure this out ourselves because the Constitution's silent about it. So they passed this very involved, detailed, and, and terribly drafted and still ambiguous statute that says, all right, here's what happens. Here's what happens when there is an issue with the counting. And it provides a kind of detailed uh, process, which is uh, what we're going to see play out today.
Right. So, um, and, and just because you characterized it that way, one of these days, it turns out not to be today, one of these days, the chambers of Congress is, are going to try to exercise more control over this process than they typically have so far. They're going to invoke that law. And I assume we'll be back in the Supreme Court pretty quickly uh, for the Supreme Court to try to figure out whether or not that law is constitutional. Yeah, look, I, today's disputes are phony baloney disputes. There, There is no legitimate real dispute about who won the, the the states in this election they're phony baloney disputes but you could you could imagine a situation where there actually is a dispute where you know somehow the election system in the state breaks down or there are technical issues or there is massive fraud I mean they, we happily this uh, this time there weren't imagine a situation where there is substantial fraud or there is real voter suppression there's something that happens which makes uh which creates a real dispute. And then uh, what happens? Uh, Congress might say, well, we've got a statute that provides for what to do. But again, that statute, even if, even if you were to determine that that statute was constitutional, it's still very ambiguous in lots of places. This issue, you're right, unless we decide, which we're probably not going to do as a country, to amend the Constitution to to clarify this. Um it could very well wind up back before the United States Supreme Court or before the United States Supreme Court. It's not back before the Supreme Court's never weighed in on this. So right now, uh, this process, the process that we have here in 2021 is unfolding. I believe Ted Cruz has, in fact, lodged the first objection, uh, that being to the uh, electors from Arizona. So just quickly, what is this process? What, what What's supposed to happen now? Yeah, so he, so here's what what happens, and and you're right. The vice president has said that he is going to, you know, not do anything crazy. That he's going to uh, get the certificates. Then what happens is tellers, uh, a bipartisan group that that's uh, appointed by both houses, um, announces the results of those certificates. They go in alphabetical order in the states, and then on the electoral count act. If there is an objection that is in writing that is signed off by, on by both a republic, excuse me, by both a senator and a member of the House, then it's a legitimate objection. Then, if that happens, then the houses of Congress separate. The Senate meets, the House meets. There is up to two hours of debate on uh, on the objection, and after that. There are votes in those separate houses, and uh, only if both houses, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, vote to sustain the objection is the, is the objection sustained. So that's what's going to happen now. They they are separating. Uh, I see now they're separating uh, into uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate to debate these object this objection, and then once that is over, which will uh, be in about two hours. Then they will come back together. Uh, they'll vote. Then they'll come back together, and they'll proceed uh, to to the next state in line. Yeah. So um, somewhere along the way, as I understand this, there's going to be um, speeches 
um, made. I mean, Mitch McConnell will probably make a speech kind of affirming this pro- the process that has taken place and explaining perhaps why he is not going to join in any effort to discredit electors. Kevin McCarthy, who's sort of his minority counterpart in the House, I may be making kind of the opposite kind of speech. And so I don't know how significant any of that is, except to maybe create some kind of record and civics lesson uh, about all this stuff, Ross. Yeah, so here, here's what I'm looking for in in those speeches. And each each member is allowed to speak up to five minutes. They're only allowed to speak once this, uh, you know, per objection. Um, what I'm looking for is actually uh, who says what. And you've identified sort of the, the two people I'm uh, among the most interested in. Uh, and mostly I'm more interested in in what uh, in, in what uh, Mitch McConnell is going to say. Uh, he said he's going to exercise his right to speak first. And, uh, you know, I'm very interested to see if he gives any credence at all to this objection, uh, any credence at all uh, to Ted Cruz's proposal that the uh that the vote count be delayed by 10 days. Cause that's what Cruz has proposed. Let's, you know, put a pause on everything for 10 days. Let's form a commission like they did in 1876 to sort all this out. Um, and, and then what he says uh, about the process and uh, because I think the tone he sets could be very significant and it could be very interesting to see how, how affirmatively he takes on Donald Trump's claims of election fraud and misconduct and all of that. I think I think his speech will be the most interesting. Well, it is sort of a day of drawing some boundaries. You know, I mean, there's a way in which really for the first time that I can think of, Mike Pence has really kind of gainsaid what Trump was ordering him to do. And Trump took that as he often does, took those orders kind of public, turned them into tweets uh, that, you know, both uh, Pence and McConnell uh, are choosing at last to disappoint uh, Trump, that there's a way in which Trump has tested all the boundaries, the limits. Uh, and and in, in many cases, it's taken a really long time for important Republicans to congratulate Biden or just say that this is over. And a lot of uh, senators and, and, and members of Congress were prepared to back um, the, these the tennis, tennis, the Texas attorney general suit. I mean, today feels like a day, Ross, where a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of people who might have gone along with certain stuff in the past are saying, no, no, you've kind of kind of reached the end of the road for me. Well, and and I think it's why Mitch McConnell didn't want today to play out like this. Uh, He reportedly told his caucus to not sign off on objections, to not have to do this, because today is the day where every senator, you know, that had uh, supported the president or indulged the president or however you want to describe it, uh, they are going to have to stand up and be counted today on an issue of incredible importance to Trump and Josh Hawley, uh, the Senator from Missouri, you know, most directly and, and, and was the first one to kind of force it by saying he was going to object. So you're, you're right. Every Senator, not just Mitch McConnell, but every Senator is going to have to say, you know, yes, I'm with you, Trump, or no, I'm not with you, Trump. And, uh, and I, I watched a good part of, uh, of the president's speech today. 
And he was very explicit that he's taken down names and he's uh, ready to support primary challenges and all of that. So that that piece is is going to be very interesting. But yes, it, it does seem like today is the day. This is the issue where uh where Republicans had to draw lines. You saw it with the governor of, of Georgia and some other governors and, and, and in particular state officials, it's the state officials that really prevented this from being closer to 1876, 1877. You know, you look at the governor of Georgia, the secretary of state of Georgia, the Pennsylvania uh, uh, legislature, you know, they stood up over the past few weeks and said, yeah, no, we're not going along with, with this challenge to the elections. Right. And so accompanying that, because the sword does cut both ways, um, there may be consequences that flow from President Trump's weekend call to Brad Raffensperger. If Brad Raffensperger doesn't get one of those Kennedy Profiles and Courage Awards, there's something wrong here. They got to give that to him and maybe to Gabriel Sterling, too, his kind of uh, lieutenant who's also spoken up forcefully. But so you've got this phone call that you know, lasted an hour and was full of this combination of kind of wheedling and scrounging and threatening and cajoling and and promising. And, and you know, it really did seem an awful lot like tampering. Um, and there are sort of two possibilities uh, for ways in which that could come back to haunt President Trump. One of them is a censure motion. Another one is the possibility that post-presidency uh, he would face face charges uh, about that and then have to retain you. Um, but let's talk about both of these. So there probably is going to be a censure motion, right, in the House? You know, th- there had been talk about it. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. You know, it may be that Nancy Pelosi just wants to move past <laughs> this Trump era and just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, honestly, if if I were her, I might take take that position also. But yeah, there there may be a censure motion where uh, where, where the House uh, members of the House move to censure the president, and maybe that that actually. Uh, gets a majority of votes. But it, it, it'll be interesting to see w- whether Pelosi wants to focus on moving ahead and substantive issues or whether she wants to focus on uh, on that call and, the, and that issue. Yeah, sometimes you just want the toddler to leave Pottery Barn. You're not even going to try to make his mom pay for the stuff he broke. Uh, just get him out of here before he breaks something else. Uh, so there might be that. But it's also been speculated that Trump may have broken laws. Uh, in, in that phone call. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time that that's been said about him. But uh, do you have any particular, I mean, obviously this is something that can only be decided by a court and it needs a lot of review. Do, do you have an instinct about that? Well, I, I, one thing I'll note is, is you know, curiously, the uh, U.S. attorney in Atlanta abruptly resigned, hmm. um, you know, a, a few days ago. I think it was around the time of of the call um and he and he's been uh replaced at least for now until uh, biden takes office by a trump political appointee i i think it's i think it's unlikely uh that the biden administration is going to to prosecute that that kind of crime i think one of the big issues with trump is is proving his mens rea, proving his intent, because it's hard to figure out. It's hard to get inside his head and figure out what he actually believes, what he actually knows. Does he does he potentially really think maybe that there was some sort of fraud here? And so he was just trying to, you know, 
tell the, 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 the secretary of state's office in Georgia to, to, you know, kind of do the right thing because you really believe there's fraud. It, it's hard to imagine that's the case, but, but maybe I, I, I think that's probably not uh, what's going to, there probably won't be a criminal prosecution. I, I think the more interesting issue uh, is, you know, we, we have found out today uh, that Merrick Gar- Garland is going to be the attorney general nominee. Uh, and I think the, the bigger issue for Trump is going to be other, uh, other potential issues, you know, financial issues uh, and the like with, uh, with the justice department and, and potentially stuff we don't even know about. But I think, I think this call uh, is, is not likely to result in, in prosecution. All right. Well, Ross Garber, um, first of all, good luck with still possibly becoming attorney general. Uh, and uh, thanks for taking some time uh, to join us for Ross Garber's Rockin' Election Certification Eve special. Ross is a lawyer specializing in political investigations and impeachment and a legal analyst for CNN. Thanks for taking some time with me, man. Good to be with you. Talk to you soon. I feel like I'm doing that Kai Ristall thing, calling people man. I don't know what that's all about. All right. So when we get back from this break, uh, it's going to be you and me. That sounds kind of threatening. Uh, (laughs) I mean, we're going to take phone calls. The number, by the way, is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. We can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. I'm going to actually actively try to sound threatening. All right. Um, right now, I'm going to set up Georgia as a topic, but I'm also just going to tell you that you can call in about any aspect of this day, of this time, of this moment. Uh, uh, anybody out there who's listening can do it, whether you're living in Danielson or Sharon or if you're Alec Baldwin listening out on Long Island, whatever, you can call in 888-720-WNPR. That's 888 9677. I'll give it out a few more times. So, you know, in 2018, I was teaching this seminar, which I'm about to start teaching again. And it w- but it was in 2018, it was a seminar about political journalism in the era of Trump. And, and one of the things that sort of, you know, emerged is that we actually had a we had a class motto. And the class motto was every day something has to happen. And, and the, the basis of that motto, the reasoning behind that motto, was that when you, when you come from the world of reality television, you know, in every episode of reality television, stuff has to happen or you've got no episode. So at minimum, there has to be wine throwing, right? People have to throw wine at each other, you know, at minimum. And that Trump very much has sort of carried that idea over into his presidency. You know, every, every day something has to happen. Quite frequently, multiple things happened. And that's sort of the world that we've lived in <laughs> all these years. I mean, really, one of the things you may find very surprising about the Biden presidency is that there might be three, four, five days in a row where nothing much happens. You don't really think about Joe Biden very much. You're not aware of anything that he's thinking about. You know, you're not aware of anything that he's doing, (laughs) which is kind of how the presidency really ought to be. 
But we've been living in this period of time where every day something has to happen. So, I mean, look what's happening now. A lot of things. You you see Trump defying his own vice president uh, and his own vice president defying Trump. Uh, you see pre- uh, senators being co-opted into doing something they know way better than to do, uh, which is uh, mount a false challenge to the electors in, after a free and fair election. There's a lot of things going on. But then you have to layer on top of that these Georgia election results. And, you know, if you just woke up from a deep 24-hour sleep, Raphael Warnock is the first Democrat ever elected to the U.S. Senate from the South. Um, he's uh, he, he's one of the two new senators. Well, he's one of, he has been elected senator from Georgia. Now, the other race, the Purdue-Ossoff race, is still in the balance. Um, Ossoff, the Democratic challenger to Purdue, holds um, an advantage a somewhat slim advantage, uh, but uh, the, it also is one of these situations where it seemed as, seems as though the tiny sliver of remaining uncounted votes are going to skew Democratic enough so that it's hard to see how Purdue pulls this out. Now, we also live in an era where people don't necessarily accept election results. And I mean, people who lose elections don't accept election results. So whether Kelly Loeffler or, or, or Purdue ultimately seed uh, or acknowledge their loss is like a whole separate other question. We could just go through another version of this. But I mean, it, it does look more probable than not that we are entering a dramatically different era of American governance from where we've been in the last four years and where we were even preceding the last four years. I mean, bear in mind, as Trump came into office, the Speaker of the House was, you know, Paul Ryan. Uh, it appears at this point that over four years of Trump, Trump has lost the White House, the House, and maybe the Senate, which is really drastically different. Anyway, uh, we have t- full open lines here. Anybody who wants to can call in. Otherwise, I'll just babble for another 27 minutes. But uh, 888-720-WNPR, what are you thinking on this day? Uh, are you reassured? Do you feel better? Do you feel as though this thing could still jump the rails? Uh, what is the Georgia uh, election results? What do they suggest to you about the future? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways in which this is uh, is historic, um, this kind of jump and this kind of switch. But rather than focus on that for a second, I would just sort of say that, wow, um, it's it's as though um, a whole bunch of other possibilities have been unlocked. I mean, it sort of depends on who you are, right? I mean, for me, I'll be honest with you about my biases. Biases. Um, for me, the idea <laughs> that these two Georgia elections for a Senate would tip the the control to the Democrats, it's kind of like finding out that. Like behind the Christmas tree, there were like a couple of other pretty good presidents, presidents that you didn't know or presidents for that matter behind your Christmas tree uh, that you just weren't aware of. You didn't know about. And now you're going to unwrap those, too. And wow, look at this thing. This is really good. It's it's an immersion blender. <laughs> I really hoped I would get one. I didn't think I did. So. Um, so, yeah, we got like an immersion blender. Unless, of course, you didn't want to see this happen. And the people who didn't want to see this happen aren't only Republicans. There's a fair number. This is a point that George Will, 
bless his heart, has hammered in for years and years. He, he asserts that Americans don't really want either party to control the White House, House and Senate, that a lot of times, somehow or other, organically, although it's a rather difficult thing to plan, but that somehow or other, when we come out with divided government, that's sort of what people want anyway, and people rest easier because of it, and there might be some truth to that. Um, but we're, there's a good possibility that we are not going to have divided government. And that just means a zillion different things. First of all, if you're Joe Biden, it means that you're going to get your people confirmed a lot more easily. I mean, you're, you know, they're, you know Merrick Garland isn't going to have a problem this time. Um, and, and a lot of other people aren't, too, if that's the case. But it goes way, way bigger than that. And I, I do dare to think. Uh, I do dare to wonder for me, and I'd be interested in knowing, you know, if, if that's true, if in fact we're about to open up the pantry and just eat anything we want, which is probably overstating it anyway. But, you know, what what are the things, you know, what are the things that you would grab for from those shelves? For me, it actually means that a public option in health insurance you know, it really kind of suddenly is floating out there on the table. I mean, you would really need to hold a lot of people together to get this, because the other thing that we know is that this is an if, in fact, the Democrats are going to win both of these Georgia elections, they aren't going to have, you know, some kind of overwhelming majority. They are going to have the narrowest possible majority. So, you know, you, you, it doesn't mean that you can get anything approved. But to me, maybe the biggest thing, the biggest treasure that is at least conceptually within reach uh, is that notion of a public option. So a public option, just so we're clear, it's not the same thing as single payer. It actually at least notionally preserves uh, the idea uh, of um, private health insurance. Uh, that private health insurance would go on undisturbed. Nobody's going to bother Anthem or anybody else. But there's going to be this other thing that you can get, uh, and it's a thing that is run by the government. Now, I have always believed that if we got um, a public option, it would deeply, deeply challenge the private insurers because, in fact, you know, the private sector is not, despite what you might hear, more efficient or leaner and meaner than the government. Um, the private sector is kind of the opposite of that. Uh, a government program like a public option would be run kind of simply, you know, kind of you could sort of say at cost. There's like no particular incentive to make a big profit or to reward your shareholders or anything. There's nothing like that. So to me, that so I, I've always believed that if we got a public option, it would really be a terrifying uh, moment for private insurers, and they would either adapt or they wouldn't. But uh, to me, as I sort of look at what's available right now, uh, what could possibly happen, uh, I do think that that's the most tantalizing thing. Obviously, some prog progress on climate change and stuff like that. I think we were going to get some of that anyway. Anyway, no one has called in yet. That doesn't frighten me. I can talk for a really long time, but it would be more fun if you did. 888-720-WNPR. Uh, 888-720-9677. I'll do those numbers again. 888 I mean, it's the same number, but, you know, uh, one of them is alphanumeric. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. Either that or maybe there's just something wrong with our phones. We don't know. Um, so... 
let's talk about this a, a little bit more um, because I think the other thing that to me, well, I mean, let's look at it on the other side. Okay. So on, on the democratic side, on the Biden side, yeah, there's like stuff that you could really start thinking about doing that you probably couldn't do with divided government. You know, there could be something big. So that's number one. Now look at it on the Republican side. If you're the Republicans, what are you thinking right now? Particularly if it turns out that you have in fact lost control of the Senate, which seems more probable than not probable. What are you thinking? What are you imagining? And it seems to me that one of the things you should be thinking about anyway is how to how to kind of restore your own brand. You know, how, how do you get back to where you were? How do you get back to the time where people you know, large numbers of people trusted you. It could be argued that this particular moment is kind of a one-off that, you know, I mean, Warnock is going to have to run again in two years, I believe. But I mean, a lot of people are going to have to run again in two years and a lot of things that can, can happen. And more often than not, and I've even got some background supplied to me just now by producer Jonathan McPants, in 1993, the Democrats uh, had uh, total control, undivided government. Uh, in 2001, Republicans had undivided government. They had total control. Oh, nine Democrats uh, had all, all three. But typically, typically, there's a backlash um, because George Will is probably kind of right. Americans don't really want to see one party have that much ability to influence or control things. So, yes. So in two years, different things are going to happen. And in Georgia... You know, I mean, now there's this whole idea, well, Georgia's a blue state now. I, I don't know whether Georgia's a blue state or not. It's a purple state. I mean, this, once again, is probably kind of a sui generis type election. You have an election where voters on one side, on the Republican side, were told that their votes don't count. The message that came from the president was, you know, that, that their votes aren't being counted, that their votes don't count. You know, there's... One of the most sacred shibboleths in electoral politics uh, is get out the vote. You know, we often you'll hear people like me heading into elections say, well, GOTV, it, you know, it's who, who's got the really good ground game, who's got the re, you know, really get out the vote. Um, so um, oh, I'm being told to give out a different number now. Let's do that then. 860-275-7266. That's 860 860- Two seven five seven two six six. If you want to call in and get on the air, that's the old talk number. Like I thought, we had a new talk number. All right, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We'll try that one if you want to get on the air. What was I saying? Um, <laughs> actually, I lost the thread of what I was saying. Um, in any case, oh, I know what I was saying. Yeah, there's often a backlash. There, you, you, often people they, they they don't want one party to have too much control. So um, there's. Uh, um, so there's, you know, this, there might be just a two year window here where all this stuff could happen. But if you're the Republicans and you would like to get control back, if you would like to, you know, reestablish your role as a major player in American politics, I think you kind of have to make some changes. I think one of the things that you're seeing is right now that the, by playing to the Trump base and by playing Trump's game, the Republicans participated in a system that a lot of people ultimately either can't believe in or don't care about. 
Uh, and and uh, this was said better than I can possibly say it uh, by a writer, Yuval Levin, writing in the National Review, which is a very conservative publication. And he writes, oh, yeah, we were giving out the wrong phone number. No wonder there was no calls. See, Alec Baldwin is going to call up now. So um, and he just talks about how, you know, really, they're sort of uh, populists can run on different things. You know, you can either talk about the kinds of things that people really care about, or you can talk about conspiracies that have no basis in reality. And, and the truth is, governing is really hard. It's it's hard to do. It's inherently unsatisfying to do. I mean, and and once again, Trump is kind of you know the living proof of that. Most of the things that he ever talked about doing, he didn't do. Uh, he never got his wall built. Uh, he did not substitute something else, some great, big, beautiful healthcare system uh, for the ACA. Uh, he did not do major infrastructure improvements. I mean, you know, he cut taxes for rich people and he stripped out a lot of environmental regulations. He did a few things, but this was not he found governing to be very hard because it is hard and it's a lot easier to just throw these things out there, you know, and, and these kind of all this kind of crazy talk about various conspiracies and people who are trying to destroy you and people who are trying to destroy America. Um, so Yuval Levin writes in the, the National Review, Congress could do some things to protect religious liberty, to lift some of the burdens weighing on Americans struggling to raise children, to push back against the radicalization of higher, higher education, to take the threat of Chinese power more seriously, to help Americans yearning for meaningful economic security or more stable employment, to make more opportunities available to Americans who don't go to college, to secure our borders and improve the immigration system, and in other ways to help more Americans lead dignified lives in a decent and prosperous free society. Well, yeah, that's a pretty solid articulation of a, a conservative position, a, con a Republican position that's built on ideas and then built on the idea of implementing those ideas through determined, nuanced governance. And that's not what has been happening here. And that's why they're losing elections. I mean, yeah, it'll be argued that uh, the Democrats lost some pretty major elections in 2020. They lost seats in the House and stuff like that. But I mean, the moment that we're at right now, and by the way, I'll be thrilled if the Republicans can do this, if they can get back to some of those ideas, like the ones that I, I just read or, or some other set of ideas, but to run on uh, on ideas and to govern with ideas and to govern seriously with ideas. I mean, that's kind of all you really can ask of a party. And if you don't agree with those ideas, that's your tough luck. But I don't think we should have to put up with a government of no ideas, a government in which bizarre conspiracy theories enjoy more currency than real ideas about governance. All right. So now we've got all kinds of things happening here. We're going to just start with Sid in Southampton. Hi, Sid. You're on the air. Oh, hey, thank you very much. It's good to talk to you, Colin. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And it seems to me to come down in a big way to people's um, philosophy on government as to you want, you know, people are scared of the big government that Democrats seem to represent, and then conservatives seem to want a small government, but it seems like the Republicans are hell-bent on making government not work. They, they put unqualified people into positions of power and try to undermine the, these underpinnings of what should be 
you know, effective structure that, that, that governs our lives that we need. I mean, if you're not going to have government do these things for you, you know, who's going to pave the roads and, and put out the fires? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to paint Republicans too broadly with that brush. That is certainly uh, the strategy adopted by the Trump administration. I mean, if you're going to put make Betsy DeVos secretary of education, you're basically saying I'm appointing someone to this position who doesn't really believe in the thing that the position is supposed to do. So, yeah, uh, I do. The other thing that I would say is that for the most part, Republicans talk a good game about less government, about shrinking the size of government, but they don't really do that. I mean, I I actually think, and I think I could back up this claim, although I'd need a little time. Uh, in, In my life, I think I've seen two people who've been really effective at reducing the size of government. One of them was Al Gore while he was vice president. He in, he headed up a thing called, I think, reinventing government or something like that. But they really shrank the size of the federal government substantially. I mean, the numbers are really impressive. And the other person is here in Connecticut, uh, Dan Malloy. Dan Malloy cut way more positions, shrank down, perhaps to our disadvantage, the size of government uh, more than any Republican leader uh, I've seen attempted. So... Um, so yeah, but anyway, I, I would agree that you've got to believe in government to be good at it. You, you can't hate government, uh, and be at, uh, be a good governor, uh, or a good person engaging in governance is what I mean. All right. Uh, all right. I'm just going to go down the board here until somebody gives me an, oh, I'm going to have to go to a break here. Oh yeah. I actually, Todd, hang on here. I can't go to you yet. Let's take a little break and let's come back after this. Georgia. Georgia, Georgia, we on the grind, Georgia, all the time, it ain't nothing on my mind, but Georgia, okay, so uh, we're back, uh, we're taking calls right now. <laughs> I'm laughing because it really was kind of funny. I was sitting there. There's this thing that we have to look at called assistant producer where you see the calls coming in. And I'm like giving out the number and there's no calls coming in. And I'm giving out the number and there's no calls coming in. And I'm thinking no one listens anymore or something. It turned out we were not giving the correct number. The correct number is 860-275-7266. we got a lot of calls here. First of all, i got to thank Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this episode, and Cat Pastor, who is the person making this episode happen there in the studio. Uh, I am lucky to have both of them. Uh, and <laughs> that really was funny. Uh, all right, I'm going to kind of jump over here, I think, to Stephen, not because I'm heavily favoring Long Island today, but because he's making a point that I hadn't made so far, and, and I think it's worth making. Hi, Stephen, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. I want to make my point quick. Um, that is, you know, oxygen, um, Los Angeles, as I understand it, is screaming for individual oxygen cylinders. And I, um, uh, I, I've just lost patience a, a bit with politicians who don't get done the things they need to get done. And I, I but I think the, the press is complicit in it too. We're all sort of hyper focused on the machinations of this. Meanwhile, there's real meat out there, uh, and and um, you know this is this is something that the, the New York Times article back in June that about how you know the third world countries needed you know trucks full of oxygen cylinders. Now, um, Los Angeles needs trucks full of oxygen cylinders, and those trucks need to be rolling and on their way. And that's what I care about. And yeah, I, be- I believe some I want our politicians to be doing yeah. right now. 
I believe some trucks from the uh, U.S. Uh, Army Corps of Engineers uh, either are on their way or have arrived already, uh, in, in particular to six um, strapped hospitals. But yeah, some COVID-19 patients can require 10 times as much oxygen as a normal patient. Um, L.A. County is just slammed with this thing. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that's been kind of lost in this whole process is the role that the federal government is supposed to play. Uh, President Trump has shown absolutely no um, interest whatsoever in playing that role uh, as he pursues the overturning of the election. That seems to be the only thing in his sights right now. All right, let me go back to Todd here. This is Todd in Waterbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Just a couple things quickly. One, uh, thank you, Georgia. As a guy who's maybe held the South in a dim view, been guilty of that. I just want to say, holy cow, of all the 50 states they came through. And the other thing is, going back to your public option and also what your caller just mentioned about Los Angeles, um, I couldn't help but think of the irony of uh, the McCain-Phelan race where they were talking about death panels, where now in L.A. it's ambulance drivers doing triage. I mean, essentially, mm-hmm. ambulance EMTs are deciding who's going to live or die that, un, under the instruction of the hospitals, whether or not to bring them in or not. I mean, these guys in these wagons are death panels, for lack of a for an awful terminology, and I'm just completely blown away by that. And, you know, the healthcare system being a, a corporate system is just stuck in amber, and it obviously has to change. And um, I'll take my, my comments off the air. Thanks. Yeah. Well, my comments are those of agreement. Uh, and yeah, I mean, one of the things the pandemic reminded us of, it, I, I can't say revealed, is that we have a system that, first of all, does not treat healthcare as a right that all people should have access to, uh, and and more or less equal access to, uh, that has major holes and deficiencies. I mean, the healthcare providers have been amazing. You know, the the nurses in particular. I was talking about them this morning on the wheelhouse. The nurses have been uh, amazing. Uh, the doctors have been amazing. These people go out there and they put their lives on the line, and they in some cases lose their lives in the course of delivering care. But the whole system that determines who gets what care is not so great. Uh, and I, there's a woodenness, uh, a lack of elasticity of the system that made testing very hard to ramp up uh, and stuff like that. And it's also causing this last mile problem that we have uh, with uh, with the vaccinations. All right. So we always try to we do practice various kinds of affirmative action here. Here's Cheryl from Plantsville. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. First of all, I'd like to say congratulations to you and all the other programming on WNPR that really brought the truth to our listeners. Um, I'm a Republican. I did not vote for Trump. I kind of realized in the beginning that that was an incorrect vote. Um, I'd like to applaud the Secretary of State who brought forth the idea that Trump's followers are a cult. I can't believe the 10 are going with him plus. I used to look at this whole presidency a negative. Right now, I'm being more positive. I have more hope. I used to say the South shall rise again. Looking at the trolls and the proud boys and the Trump supporters. But, you know, I want to congratulate Georgia for the wisdom to know the difference and for the voting that they have done. And I'm so proud of them. The South shall rise again. 
Yes, they did. And I'm more hopeful and positive now. So thank you. Well, thank you for your call, uh, Cheryl. Uh, and I'll pass your compliment along to my WNPR colleagues. Yeah, I just want to quickly also mention, you know, a deep south state like Georgia. Now, the deep south ain't what it used to be. And Georgia is not is a very different place than, than it was before. And proof of that is that if these numbers hold up in one day, Georgia will have elected two pre- two senators, one of whom is uh, a black man and then the other one is a Jewish man, which is, I think, not people's image of the Deep South or, or what a state like Georgia would typically do electorally. You know, that we are moving into, I think, a more, I hope, a more diverse and representative time uh, throughout the country. In, in Georgia, I mean, this could be a one-off. Two years from now, there could be a very different picture in Georgia. I don't think the Republican Party is going to take this lying down. But yeah, they were they got caught in a double whammy. One of them, one thing was the president was telling people essentially, you know, your vote might not be worth anything. So which makes people think, well, why would I bother to vote then? And then it touched off a civil war. It's very hard to run a, a statewide election if you've got a civil war going on inside your party in which Republican is pitted against Republican. All right. We have to stop there. Uh, but this has been fun. We should do calls more often. I don't know why we do. Uh, we, why we don't, that is. Uh, but we should do it more often, and we will. Thanks to all of you who listened and those of you who called in and those of you who just put up with us, you know, on a daily basis. Thank you.